Hi everyone, my name is Sophia. I'm the executive editor of the Commonwealth Times. Thank you so much for coming out to Beyond the Politics tonight. The CT has worked very hard the past couple weeks putting together tonight's event. Um, we wanted to put this together after the Parkland shooting as a response, and we're hoping to discuss several things such as um, the root causes of a mass shooting, why the United States seems to be uniquely prone to mass shootings, and what policy issues there are to address mass shootings. I want to remind everyone this is a civil discourse and not a debate. And on that note, I would like to introduce tonight's moderator, Fidel Alasan, who's also the CT's managing editor. He's going to introduce our panelists. Thank you guys. So first of all, I want to thank WVCW uh, Student Radio, um, that's VCU Student Radio Station and Mercury Video. Um, we'll be having a video of this posted on the Commonwealth Times uh, Facebook page. Uh, so if you don't follow the Facebook page, that's a great reason to. Um, and WVCW is broadcasting live um, on their website right now. So, um, I want to get started by introducing the panelists. Um, I'll start with John Augenbaugh um, from VCU's Political Science Department. Augenbaugh teaches constitutional law and public policy courses at VCU, and he was formerly at Virginia Tech. He has presented at a number of academic conferences and has, and has public law entries published in various academic encyclopedias. You guys can clap for the panelists. Lori Haas from the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Haas is the Virginia State Director of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, the organization which advocates for the right to live in communities free from gun violence. Her daughter was shot and survived the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007, prompting her efforts to promote awareness to the issue. Jessica Smith is with VCU's Wilder School. Smith is a doctoral student and a graduate teaching assistant right here at VCU. She formerly worked for the state as public safety initiatives coordinator at the Attorney General's office uh, and as the school campus and public safety resource specialist at the v Virginia Center for School and Campus Safety with the Department of Criminal Justice Services. Philip Van Cleve is with the Virginia Citizens Defense League Incorporated. Van Cleve joined the, the VCDL in 1995, a year after he was founded. He is now the president of the organization. The nonpartisan grassroots organization works to advance the rights of Virginians to, bear, to keep and bear arms. Van Cleve has made a number of appearances on national television, including CNN and The Daily Show. Um, so a couple things before we get started. I want everyone to hold their applause until the end. Um, that way we can, you know, keep things moving swiftly. Um, and we're going to have pre-screened questions from students um, that, that submitted them to us. Um, and I'll be calling on them to, uh, to say their questions aloud from the audience. Meanwhile, I'll be moderating uh, the four panelists here. Um, so, with that, we can get started with question one. Katie Bashista. 
Um, and just because she doesn't have a mic, she asked, how do you define a mass shooting and what makes a mass shooting different from other kinds of gun violence? Uh, Ms. Smith. we're going into a um, research, um, to, to research the topic, um, typically it's three or more victims um, in one generalized location area um, where the, the goal of the shooting was um, to inflict uh, mass, ca mass casualties. Um, so when we count um, these instances, sometimes what's included is where if it was a um, a shooting where it just so happened that more than one, more than three people were injured, but the goal of it was not to commit an instance of mass shooting. It would not be counted in those types of um, events. Um, but otherwise, it's the, typically three or more um, victims at a in a incorporated time or on a um, on a track or plan. Um, by the way, if anyone else wants to add, if any of the other panelists want to add on to that, feel free to do so. Just pass the mic. Um, my understanding is the FBI um, defines it as four or more persons killed, not necessarily just injured, but four or more persons killed in a single incident. And the single incident has to have some location factors involved or, or you know, at a house in the garage next door or at a house in the grocery store next door, but a single incident. And how they define single incident has not been made clear. Um, based on time and locality, but FBI says four more killed in one incident. And different public health experts have different definitions. Some have the number of injured versus total number of victims versus numbers of killed. So it's, it's not defined in, by one single agency or one single understanding. So that's what it makes it difficult to track. You'll see how many school shootings or how many mass shootings or how many this over a time period or a time frame, and depending upon the source, that's why there's different numbers. And so, can anyone speak to the prevalence of mass shootings in America? Like, how how prevalent are they here compared to other countries? Okay, is this okay? It didn't sound like it was working. Um, the um, what you typically want to you're comparing to is like Europe saying, well, other, other similar industrialized countries. And um, during the years that Obama was president, which would be recent years, if we're looking at recent history, eight years just prior to the current president, um, if you looked at the uh, frequency and uh, the rates of these between all of Europe, which then you're approaching the same kind of population that America has, uh, at least the EU, uh, the rates are actually very similar, um, it, it not only in how likely it would be that you'd be in such a shooting, which is a fraction of uh, percent of one million per, per million individuals, uh, as, and also the, the death rate um, that they have uh, in Europe. So uh, they don't cover things quite to the extent that we do. We really put a magnifying glass over everything that makes it look like it's a whole lot more frequent here, but in, pre in actual truth it's not and so they've had some huge ones in Europe uh, which which countries are you talking about in uh, Europe France uh, Belgium Switzerland Finland Czechoslovakia um, all have had uh, a fact rate higher than we do um, in mass shootings uh, during the the entire Clinton presidency 
And you didn't answer the question for uh, the first question when oh. it comes to definition. Yeah. So what? So because it seems to me like when you're talking about these countries, I don't, you know, either that's not true or I don't hear about them. So what, is it the same definition that you're going by? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So uh, well, maybe stuff? you don't care, but it just seems like it always comes up. No, like, I didn't. Oh. No, I didn't say I don't care. Oh, okay. I thought you said you didn't care. <laughs> yeah, I, it's the I same. Don't same I don't hear about them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear. I'm sorry. But yeah, it, that's it, anyhow. And you wanted to, the first question about what a mass shooting is. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, I agreed with the other two. Uh, she said more than three, which is four, four or greater, is the, the standard definition. There was some uh, playing with those numbers by Diane Feinstein. She raised it to six during the year of the assault weapon ban in the United States, which made it look like they had less mass shootings during that time. But it's supposed to be four. It's the best standard that we have out there. But part of the issue, as uh, the panelists are suggesting, is how do you define it? Um, whether it's the lack of a, a specific definition by the FBI, or um, how do you define it, you know, per country? Um, that's one of the difficulties in terms of researching um, any incident of, uh, of, of a negative public policy or a public policy problem is, are you comparing apples to apples, oranges to oranges, oranges to apples, etc.? How are we defining it? Because what may be the definition in the United States um, may not be the definition for many European countries or other developed nations. Then you also have the issue of has the definition changed by law or by regulation uh, in this country? So just a few moments ago, uh, 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 my fellow panelists went ahead and mentioned, well, at one point you had members of the Senate saying a mass shooting had to be six or more. Okay, so has, is that changed? So one of the difficulties when you hear a report or hear comparisons is trying to figure out how are we defining the public policy phenomenon? And so for our next question, I'm going to turn it over to Zach Joachim, who is a student in the English department. And so his question was, a lot of these mass shootings, it seems like they're using the AR-15 weapon. And he said, uh, why is this the popular weapon of choice. Is it the weapon of choice? Um, and if it is, then why? Okay. Um, the largest, one of the largest mass shootings was right here in Virginia at Virginia Tech. And that was all done with a handgun. Um, and indeed, there have been some that, that picked the AR-15, which I find to be fascinating because it's a rifle. It's a lot bigger to try and smuggle into a school and attempt the shooting, but uh, they, I think what you get is copycats, you know, you, especially with the media putting the magnifying glass and spending so much time emphasizing um, not only making the person that did this uh, celebrity, but uh, the, the focusing on the tool that he used as opposed to what he actually did. And I think copycats got a lot to do with the AR-15. Um, it's like I say, it's not easy to smuggle that into a school. Um, just to clarify the I don't think this is working at all, or is it? It is. You have to hold it. You have to hold it really close to your face. <laughs> Basically, kiss it. Okay. 
We'll try to be sanitary. You know, the definition of a semi-automatic can be debated and discussed, and I, you know, it's very difficult to come up with an exact definition because you can change, apparently, a lot of features on that. But to clarify, the shooter at Virginia Tech did use a semi-automatic handgun with large capacity magazine, so he was equipped with enough firepower to do even more damage than he did, which was, as we all know after the fact, 32 students and educators, 17 injured, and another half a dozen or more jumping out a window because they had the choice of waiting for the gunman who was about to break in or jump out a two-story window. So, um, you know, capacity of, of and firepower make a difference in the lethality of these shootings and how many people and how quickly you can do as much damage as you are trying to do. Um, and I think that is part of the focus and why there's been so much attention on uh, semi-automatic long guns and um, their killing power and, and how and why, what they were designed for and then how they're misused. And so I'm trying to come away with an understanding of, of this. So it's not necessarily the AR-15, or, or is that a misconception that people have that it's the AR-15 that's frequently used? Or, or is the issue here just semi-automatic weapons? Is that? Well, I think if you look at um, gun violence as a, as a whole in the United States, mm -hmm. the majority of um, violence that is attributed to gun violence is it's not going to be an, an AR-15. It's not going to be um, one of those types of weapons. Is the majority of the time, it's handguns that are being used. Um, and so, but because of the nature of and kind of the shock of these events, um, whatever's being used in in these events gets that attention and that priority. Um, so I think that's why there's been so much focus around this. Also, the um, kind of the, um, I would say the uh, lethality of the um, weapon as well. Um, so you have um, typically a higher capacity um, um, with those weapons. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yeah. Any? So what you're saying is it's not necessarily, when you're looking at gun violence as a whole, it's typically not going to be the AR-15. But the nature of mass shootings, they're, the way they're reported in the media, it, it, you know, that's what we see, you know, typically. Yeah, and, and during the um, assault weapon ban, during those that, those ten years, um, we saw the instances of um, mass shootings remain um, relatively the same. But you just saw people using, um, you know, bump stocks or higher um, capacity weapons that weren't um, assault weapons, um, and so. You know, it's not necessarily just those weapons that would contribute to that problem. Um, what was interesting in the, in the shooting in Florida is that uh, the, uh, I saw recently reported in three different places that apparently he only had 10 round magazines. He had a bunch of them, but he couldn't fit the longer magazines in. The, he apparently tried to hide the gun in a backpack or something, and he, the longer magazines wouldn't work. So apparently the whole thing was done with 10 rounds. In Virginia Tech, there were, I think, I think Cho had three 15-round magazines and a bunch of 10s. And in the report that the state put together afterwards, uh, they noted that they don't think the 15-round magazine, making those into 10s instead of 15, would have really made any difference. Because um, with magazines, they're meant to be able to reload a gun quickly. So anyhow, it's rather, it's rather interesting, the whole debate on capacity. Um, anyhow. 
Um, before we go on to the next question, I just want to remind you guys to hold the microphone. Since we're broadcasting on student radio, and <laughs> not to single anyone out, but just make sure you hold the microphone uh, and you hold it pretty close to your face. That way, the radio can pick it up as well. Um, so for our next question, uh, Ryan Rich, who is a student in the graphic design department. Okay, um, the uh, primary reason that I have firearms is for self-defense. That's number one. If you can't protect your life, it's not worth much. Um, I also really enjoy things like target shooting. Uh, it is a mental game. It's not a physical game. And by the way, women tend to be better at that than men. It's because it's, it's a focus. You, you lock in and you focus down. And I find that to be completely relaxing because I can't think about anything else while I'm, while I'm doing that if I want to do a really good job. And at the same time, I'm, I'm increasing my skills uh, in case, heaven forbid, uh, I ever have to defend myself. I was a deputy sheriff for six years, and I got to see the importance of people being able to protect themselves before we could arrive. You know, we tried to get there on time as much as we could, but I had a neighbor literally two doors down from me, knew I was a deputy. She didn't have time to call me. Uh, and she simply took an empty 22 rifle and pointed at somebody that was kicking her door in, and that was the end of that. He ran off, and, and she was okay, and, and he didn't get shot. So um, it's really mostly self-defense. I think our right to protect ourselves and our families is, is absolutely paramount. And Professor Augenbach, I know I understand that you like to hunt, so, and I know you own a couple firearms. Could you, could you answer that question as well? Uh, yeah. Um... Uh, as, as Fidel has noted, uh, and I get asked this question with some regularity when I teach civil rights, civil liberties, um, uh, I learned to uh, operate a firearm before I learned to operate uh, an automobile and many other adult, if you will, skills. Um, it is part of the culture where I grew up. It is part of my identity. Um, uh, I've hunted most of my life uh, for far longer than I've done a lot of other things. Um, uh, but um, I, I guess I come from a different experience to answer the question that was posed. Um, like with operating an automobile or many other privileges or liberties afforded by government or by our Constitution, what was part and parcel of my culture where I grew up was you had to learn how to use the weapon um, and use it responsibly. And uh, so therefore, the notion that there were reasonable regulations or restrictions um, was part and parcel of that culture. Um, family members, and I still have them today, uh, view a weapon as an essential part of defending one's life or home, um, and others, um, and, and even myself, as recently as two weeks ago, um, I went target shooting, and and I found value in it. Um, but again, um, for many who don't understand uh, the fascination or the attachment, uh, for those of us who were, um, you know, whether it's born in certain parts of the country or in certain families, uh, having a firearm, learning how to use it responsibly was something that was presented as an option. 
Do I have family members who don't own guns or operate guns? Sure. Um, but again, that's their choice. So. And I'll just add to it. Um, I also um, own guns and I have, um, I grew up around them as well. Um, but not, and, and I'll add something as well. It, it's fun to go to the range or go to it on a tactical um, operation with, you know, um, I've gone with um, the FBI or with um, a local sheriff's department and done um, different type of tact training. Um, and, but I, before I made sure, brought a gun into my home, I made sure I knew how to use it and how to clean it and how to store it safely and, um, and how to keep it out of hopefully the hands of someone who um, had malintentions. Um, however, and like what John was saying, um, I, agree, you know, I, I oper always operated on that there were restrictions around it. Um, there, there were, it was kind of, as an owner, it was incumbent upon me to learn how to um, use it and um, when I should carry, when I should not carry. Um, going through the concealed carry class in Virginia, um, it's interesting because you never even have to touch a gun. Um, to have that class. Um, something that I found interesting. I don't choose to carry, I, I did not choose to go through and get my concealed carry because as much training as I've gone through, I never felt that if I was out in a situation that I was at a level that I would be able to effectively um, do something to intervene. Um, and that's, but that's just, again, that's a personal choice, but I do think it is part of this kind of American identity that, you know, this is what, um, this is an option that we have. It's sort of a right that we do have. And um, again, I think it, it does, half of my family um, feels one way about it, half of my family feels another way about it. Um, and, so, and sometimes they do not understand each other. So I do think there is that big, that it, there is that difference um, within the American culture um, around where you grew up and who you grew up with and how you grew up. Um, about how you feel and how you identify with uh, owning a gun or using a gun. Um, I don't own a gun. I don't want to own a gun. I don't have any need to own a gun. Um, my husband does, however, and um, he grew up hunting and he has, I have two sons and he's taken them target shooting and I've tagged along and, you know, tried to hit something I obviously have very poor eye-hand coordination because I can't hit anything so I've tried it um, and it, it's just not something that interests me I think I can understand on some level you know the sport or the challenge or the interest in some of the uh, target shooting or um, you know going to a range or hunting um, but what I don't understand is um, you know, the resistance at regulating firearms and who can house them and where they can be carried and who can carry them and, you know, attempts to prohibit people who exhibit dangerous behavior or violent behavior or certain convictions, you know, I think we ought to do more to um, prohibit those people, remove their firearms and um, make certain that those of us who are exposed to gun violence by people who shouldn't have them, that is mitigated and limited. You know, we, when we can identify people at risk for committing violence and lethal violence, and then we do nothing to disarm them, I think, you know, we're culpable. And I think that's where part of the problem lies. I, I, I think that, you know, the gun-owning public it understands that, you know, that regulations can work. So um, I hope that we get to that point where we can look at the regulations, understand that they're targeted, and then uh, get behind those. I don't think it's about legal gun ownership at all. 
Um, so when you talk about regulation, the conversation, I guess, is kind of made uniquely complex in America because we have the Second Amendment. And I'm not sure if that's something that's unique to Americans. It, and maybe, uh, Professor Agi, this is something you can speak to. Is is the second? Can you talk about the history of the Second Amendment and why? Let's start with why the. Because I have several questions about it. <laughs> Let's start with why. Why did the founding fathers include that in the Bill of Rights? Okay, for the rest of you all who want to go out and get a snack, maybe get some caffeine so you get awake. So in about 20 minutes, when I bored you all, um, okay. Uh, there are a lot of parts there, and at various times I'm going to hand the mic over to uh, my fellow panelists. But let's start first start with uh, how unique is the United States in regards to legal gun ownership? And the, the, the first distinct, distinction that most constitutional law scholars make is um, uh, those nations that allow for uh, legal gun ownership for uh, personal defense. And there's basically three in the world, uh, the United States, Mexico, and Guatemala, okay? To your question about the history, uh, and depending on which historian you ask, which constitutional law scholar you ask, the answers are gonna vary. But if there's one commonality among those who go ahead and say that the framers intended for an individual right to uh, uh, possess and bear a firearm. Um, it was rooted in the notion that throughout the colonial experience with the British Crown, at various times, the Crown either threatened or actually required that the colonists disarm themselves. So it was viewed as a mechanism, as a, a possible way to respond to uh, overtures or entreaties or impairments by the British Crown. Like I said, it's a debated, okay, disputed uh, notion among historians and constitutional law scholars. I know some of my fellow panelists might argue otherwise. I'm just saying based on my research and what typically um, uh, I use in regards to teaching the Second Amendment, okay? Um, why is it complicated? Well, in part, the U.S. Constitution doesn't come with an owner's or operating manual, okay? And there's not a glossary of terms that goes ahead and says this is how this amendment should be interpreted. So if you look at something like the Second Amendment, which has a prefatory clause, which some have read to uh, require that before you can have a gun, it's because you are a part of a militia, well then individuals owning and uh, bearing a firearm is only for that purpose. However, as many of you are well aware, that's not the view of the current Supreme Court. First starting with DC versus Heller in 2008, and then the companion case in 2010, McDonald versus Chicago, the court has made it very clear by narrow votes, uh, narrow major majorities, five to four in both cases, that the court is interpreting the Second Amendment as uh, legally protecting 
an individual liberty uh, to uh, bear and possess a firearm. In both opinions, first Scalia's and DC versus Heller, and then Alito's and McDonald versus Chicago, there is explicit language that acknowledges that this liberty, like almost every other liberty that the court has found or acknowledged in the U.S. Constitution, may be regulated. Reasonable regulations are allowed by the government. So then, here's where it gets complicated, Fidel. What is a reasonable regulation? Um, as I've noted in other fora, uh, the United States Supreme Court has not taken another Second Amendment gun case since McDonald versus Chicago. So the court has basically left it to either the lower federal appeals courts or the state courts to decide what are or are not reasonable regulations. Some of those courts have gone ahead and said that uh, weapons like the AR-15 uh, are not protected by the Second Amendment. Other courts have said, well, yes, they are. The courts can't even agree on what should be the level or standard of review. Some courts, uh, for instance, like the California State uh, Supreme Court, have said that government regulations of gun ownership uh, only has to pass the rational basis test, i.e., did the legislature have some sort of rationality, and if so, then the law or regulation is constitutional. Other federal appeals courts have said defending uh, one's home, one's family, themselves is such a fundamental liberty that the standard of review should be strict scrutiny. Until, I would argue, we get further clarification from the Supremes, we're going to have a lot of confusion and a lot of complication in regards to what is or is not a reasonable regulation of the Second Amendment uh, uh, right. But enough of me talking. Do any of my panelists want to jump in? If you guys just want to talk about how the Second Amendment kind of informs the way that you view, that you view how we should legislate guns. Can I ask the professor a question? Because yeah, I've of course. always. <laughs> well, I've really always wanted to know this answer. I know that, uh, uh, you know, in the um, cases that you mentioned, Heller and McDonald and, and Scalia, you know, he mentioned that self defense in the home. He clarified the right to self defense in the home, not out in public. Um, but as far as their ruling that it is an individual right, can you? describe if that has come up in front of the Supremes over the years. What I've always heard, and again, I'm, I can't say this conf confidently at all, is that for 200 years it was not interpreted by previous Supreme Courts as an individual right. It was just in recent years. So did they address it specifically or was it just ignored? You, did that make, am I making no, that's a really good question. Before D.C. versus Heller, one of the great unanswered questions that constitutional law scholars had was, well, what is the meaning of the Second Amendment as it relates to either an individual or collective right? 
the previous Supreme Court rulings, and there were only about a handful of them, um, either uh, punted the issue or they talked around it. They never specified. So you had a Supreme Court that it looked like to the legal community was consciously trying to ignore or avoid the question, okay? So to your specific question, by and large, the court largely ignored it. It wasn't until DC versus Heller where the question was squarely posed to the court that you had five justices say it's an individual right, and then you had four in the dissent, um, uh, joining uh, Justice Stevens' dissent, that seemingly said, no, it's a collective right, that it has to further or be in relation to the purpose of a militia, okay? So to your question, by and large, it was largely ignored by the court. But to Fidel's question, how does this complicate policymaking? Well, I think, and I'll just start this off and then you know, turn to my uh, fellow panelists. But if you're in California and you have a state legislature um, that uh, is interested in gun control, you're gonna get one answer. If you're in, say, Texas, you're going to get a different answer. And because we're not getting clarity from the court in regards to what may or may not be reasonable regulations, okay, that adds to the policy complexity, which then begs the question, well, should then the United States federal government get involved? Okay. Here's another one, and my fellow panelists just mentioned this. Scalia mentioned in D.C. versus Heller there was an individual right to defend oneself in one's home. But we've had appellate courts since D.C. versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago say, well, what good is it to defend yourself in your home when you spend a good portion of your time away from your home? So if it's defense that the court was seemingly acknowledging as the primary purpose of the Second Amendment, your right to defense should follow you no matter where you go. Okay? But that's not explicitly rooted in the language of either Scalia or Elito's, Elito's opinions. I'm not saying that that might not be the interpretation or shouldn't be the interpretation. All I'm saying is, until we get clarification, okay, you're going to have one appellate court in one part of the country saying that's a constitutional purpose behind the right. And you have another court saying, no, okay? The right to defense is in one's home, protecting oneself and one's family. What happens when you leave your home? Well then, you know, hey, the government can go ahead and regulate it. That contributes to policy clear, or, uh, complexity, if you will. Yeah, the, um, the Second Amendment is in the Bill of Rights. Those are not rights, those are not powers given to the state. States have powers, we have rights. Um, and uh, it's all about rights. It's about your right to free speech, your right to, to practice religion, your right not to have your uh, property taken from you without due process, uh, your right to a jury by trial, and in there is, is, is the Second Amendment. It's uh, unless our founding fathers were really uh, having a stroke at the time, they, they, they were they stupidly put something that's a collective right right in the middle of civil rights for individuals. Uh, it just seems to me that that uh, 
kind of settles, settles it right there. But again, as the professor points out, the, the courts have been wildly uh, different on this. Now, in the case of, of DC versus Heller and uh, Chicago versus McDonald, the court will answer, and correct me if I'm wrong, the court will answer the question asked. Now, and that's what they do. So if you're asking, can a person have, do they have a right to have a gun in their home? The court's going to answer that question. They're not going to typically give a formal answer about anything else. They stay focused. Now, they do have dicta where they, they, they kind of point out some other things that they're kind of thinking, like maybe, again, maybe an assault rifle is something that could be uh, regulated um, where other, outside of the home or even in the home. But that's actually, that's dicta. It's sort of their thinking on it. It gives you an idea of where they're, where they're heading with something. But... Um, Anyhow, it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, it would be nice to have, we're America, you know, we've got 50 states. They should all be running under exactly the same laws. And right now, um, it, it's, it's dramatically different. And mostly it's, it's state laws that make the difference, too. If you think about it, it's easy, it's easy to get a permit in Virginia as long as you're not a criminal. Try and get one in Maryland. Try and get one in D.C. Try to get one in New Jersey. Um, you know, you can open carry in Virginia without a permit, try to open carry in New Jersey and see what happens to you. So that's a shame. And hopefully at some point we'll get the, the uh, Supreme Court to actually go ahead and just come out and just, you know, lay out the, the law. I like where the Second Amendment uh, discussion is going. And I'll let you get to, your, to what you were going to say. But we have the room till 5:30. Um, we should have booked it longer. This is great. Um, but yeah, yeah, we'll 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 keep. We'll you can um, answer the question and then. Um, no, we can keep going. I'll, I'll okay. Okay. If you don't pose any more questions to me, that's perfectly. You you taking up your time? Yeah, I've already had my allotted time. So I have a question for Ms. Smith. Um, so what are some. So, so what are some policy proposals that focus on that that you have heard or that, that regarding you, mass shootings? Right. That okay. that focus on response and defense when they do occur. Okay. Um, so what I was um, just going to say regarding um, the Bill of Rights is that we've seen um, that they're not just um, you know you can't untouchable. That typically when there is, and specifically when there's a um, public safety concern, they, um, we, the federal government or the state government can step in and act um, to restrict those rights anytime there's a, pu a genuine public safety concern. Um, and so that's, you know, where this comes around, um, this topic, especially if we're going to talk about school, um, how to protect schools. And um, so one of the things that we found is when we've started to look at um, mass shootings, especially school shootings, is that there, in the majority of cases, there is this thing called leakage around um, the shooter, where the shooter has told someone about it. Um, there's been um, signs um, that there's an escalation, um, that there, you know, there's um, signs that there's going to be aberrant behavior. Um, there's some sort in, in the field we call it leakage. Um, so one of the things that um, Virginia specifically has done in schools is we're the first state, and I think to this day it's still the only state that had, mandates threat assessment teams in schools. It, it, no, in, in K-12. through We, uh, in 2014, we passed a bill that, um, it, it, now m many states have them as mandatory in higher ed, but we're the only, to my, to my knowledge, we're still the only state that has 
them for a K-12 um, school. Can you explain what yeah. that means? And so what a threat assessment team is, it's a mix of, um, and, and different states have different components, but in Virginia it has to be, it's at the school level, um, and it has to be um, um, individual staff members at the school who make up different disciplines. So, for example, a law enforcement officer. So if there's an SRO assigned to a school, they should be on the threat assessment team. Someone from administration, someone from the guidance counselor's office, someone from um, kind of a community support standpoint. And what they do is when there's a threat made at school, they analyze it um, and decide if the, act, the appropriate action that needs to be taken on it. So, for example, if, if a janitor found a note that said, I'm going to, or a notebook in the trash that said, I'm going to blow up the school tomorrow, um, they would pass that along to the threat assessment team. They would evaluate it, um, and then they would um, kind of take the appropriate action. Um, so the act, and so where I used to work at the Department of Criminal Justice Services, we um, surveyed schools every year. Um, and so I, actually the, re, the results from last year's survey just came out. Um, so I can say that um, all schools in Virginia have the threat assessment team. Um, and the 40% um, of schools have some sort of anonymous reporting mechanism where if someone see, has a tip, it can either be a um, computer, it can be on, on, by the phone, um, and all of the threat, assess, threat assessments, only one, 1% of the, th the threats made, which were about two-thirds of schools had some sort of threat made at school. Um, and this but this also includes threats to self-harm as well. Half of those threats were self threats to self-harm. Only 1% of those threats that were made were toward the school and, or were um, actually carried out. Um, and that could either be a suicide attempt, um, that, that includes um, that, in, that includes um, things like um, an actual fight where there was a threat of a fight. Um, some of the cases were on um, um, cyberbullying or cyberstalking where someone carried out their threat that they made to um, um, cyberstalk someone. Only one case actually um, resulted in any type of shooting and it was actually it was not on campus. It was away from the campus. Um, so it's important to remember that these events are incredibly rare um, especially but um, we, ha we can have these these if we look at the signs um, and the statistics around them, that if we know that there is this thing called leakage that's around them, we can put in places, put in structures to try to mitigate those threats. And so a threat assessment team is one way that here in Virginia we're attempting to kind of mitigate that threat. Um, law enforcement and, um, and communities also have threat assessment teams that they do the same thing when they evaluate tips. Um, and so that's just one way um, from a school safety standpoint that we can do that. That, did you want to add on to that? Well, not on to what, what she was saying, but um, I, and I think that's, that's a great way to handle it. Obviously, we're, we're doing fairly well in, in, as far as in Virginia. Um, but um, our, our view on this um, is um, a little, well, that's all good and fine. But at the end of the day, if somehow one of these monsters shows up at a university, at a, at a K through 12, you need to have a way to stop them. It doesn't matter how they got there. What, you know, if the government, like in the case of Cho, they, they just never quite got around to putting him in the system. One thing or another fell through the cracks. Look, look what happened in Florida. All those calls and everything. Look at this guy. You know, he's terrible. We think he's going to kill people. All ignored, and he ended up showing up with, with a gun. And the idea there, our view is that you need to have more people in the school that are capable of stopping somebody like that. We've got, we've got a fire extinguisher. We, we have a... 
I didn't hear it. We're just going to ask that everyone in the audience. We're just going to ask that everyone in the audience just keep to themselves. Oh, we'll have a he small- wasn't. He was outside the school in Florida. He didn't go in. He was apparently a coward or whatever. But um, the teachers, let's take Florida. The teachers that were in there, there were two that very bravely put themselves between their students and uh, the gunman, and he ended up killing uh, at least one of them. I think the other one might have been wounded. Very brave teacher um, in Connecticut that did the same thing, a vice principal. She came out with no protection and charged this guy as he shot his way through a window coming into the school. That, that's an incredible act of bravery. But now imagine for a second if she had a firearm and could have shot him as he was coming through that very narrow window, which would be what we call a kill zone, he would have been at a tremendous disadvantage, and she would be alive, and so would a whole bunch of kids. Those poor professors um, that put their lives on the line, could, could they have returned fire? Would they have liked to have had that option? I bet they would have. Uh, that would change everything. Incoming rounds change everything. Suddenly, the person that was in control of everything isn't in control anymore. Now he's dodging and weaving. Everything changes. And um, that's why, you know, we, we like the idea of they put, you know, some schools have their resource officers. That's wonderful. But those resource officers move around. The people that are guaranteed to be in a school would be like the teachers and, and, and staff. And uh, what, the, what they've done in Utah is they allow anybody with a concealed handgun permit to carry in any of their schools from K-12 all the way through universities. And uh, they just don't have shootings in Utah because you wouldn't know where to begin. Is it the janitor or is it the te- teacher talking to the parent? Which one of them might have a gun? Who has a gun in here that you don't know? They're all concealed. Here, Liberty University is doing it. They've been doing it for, what now, three years? They allow anybody with a permit to carry at Liberty University. I think it would be a really bad choice to attack Liberty University. That's, that's one of many things. That's not the, the total, there's going to be no total solution to this no matter what. Ours is sort of the... Everything else is failed solution. Hopefully this would be a deterrent. Who would want to attack a school like that? They hopefully wouldn't even try. But uh, obviously if you can catch it up front and, and not even be put in that position, that's, that's wonderful. So, so one thing I, just, I do want to say, because these instances are so rare, it's hard to say that it, because Utah allows for concealed carry that that means this is why they don't happen. It's, you know, it, it's, if, if we have no instances before and then we change something, and we have no instances after. We can't say that that caused no instances after. Uh, right, but we can't say it helped either. Um, we, we don't know the effect. Um, I, I will say from a liability standpoint, um, some schools have a very big issue with allowing untrained people to carry firearms. Um, I'm not sure what qualifies for you to, carry conceal, to get a concealed carry permit in Utah, but like I said, in Virginia, to have one, you don't even have to have touched a gun. Um, you know, and so I think that in the hesitancy, I will say is let's let's look at and I, did everyone watch the Olympics? I'm going to use this example. Um, you know, the event, the biathlon or biathlon, right, where you're skiing and you have to shoot targets. Um, these are Olympic athletes who train in this event and are, um, you know, their their heart rates going. They're going real. You know, they're doing physical activity and they still are missing the target. So now you're incorporating perhaps someone who's untrained with a weapon, having a weapon. Even, even law, law enforcement officers who are in um, officer-involved shootings on the street have a lower percentage rate of actually hitting a target than hitting it. Um, and so now we're talking about perhaps giving, arming, any, arming anyone with a weapon. And so, you know, there are those considerations that you have to take, um, uh, you know, 
to consider, considerations you have to consider. Um, and to, <laughs> when, we're, when we're talking about changing policy in this way, um, and I think that's a good pivot um, to not talk about the actual issue, which is um, on gun control, because now we're talking about arming teachers and we're having a discussion about arming teachers and not actually talking about uh, gun control policy. Um, and, and I think w one thing, going back to what we've seen with the Supreme Court, where it's come to enabling rights, um, what we've seen is they'll sometimes defer to what states are doing. What are the majority of states are doing? And so that's where I think um, coming up, talking about solutions, um, if we're going to um, feel a certain way either on one side or the other, it is we have to kind of vote and get our legislators involved. And then once states start to impact and implement restrictions, um, and we have a 70-30 split, or we have a very clear split between states, then that may compel the Supreme Court to actually um, dictate what we're going to do from a federal level. Um, I think Ms. Haas wanted to oh, add sorry. to it. That's okay. Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, for um, the work I do um, with regard to gun violence is, is prevention and reduction. We'd like to focus on the shooter and what are risk factors are there and mitigate those risk factors. And we want to disarm those people before something ever happens. We do not want and do not feel and do not support that arming teachers is a solution to school safety at all. Um, law enforcement officers have to undergo training for hundreds and hundreds of hours. They have to maintain that training for a certain number of hours. Every agency is different. Every law enforcement is different. But it involves muscle memory. You have to be able to rotely pick up that firearm. You have to be prepared to shoot. and You have to be prepared to hit your target. You have to have retention training. You have to have judgment training. Your physiological, your peripheral vision abandons you in a fight or flight situation. It abandons you completely. My daughter will tell you she didn't see anything when she was in that classroom. It's because when, when you're in that fight or flight, your peripheral vision goes down to about this, and I can't see this my So law, the amount of training that law enforcement officers undergo, and I admire them for doing that, and they put on a uniform and they risk their lives, you know, to keep us safe. There are estimates, and I've heard them in um, different ranges, that in an active shooter situation, they only hit their target between 18 and 25% of the time. And they've had that amount of training. I don't think there's any uh, school system that can afford to train their teachers to that extent. If we're going to spend that kind of money, we need to be spending it on other resources, you know, smaller classrooms, improvements to the classrooms, other uh, services. You, the focus, one thing that we can focus on is the risk. And as, as uh, I'm sorry. Your just name went right out the window. As Jessica mentioned, you know, leakage and in information is, is key. You know, what are their signs? Are there symptoms? Are there are there behaviors? And, and there are behaviors that we can identify, you know, based on data and research. Uh, domestic violence abusers, for one. You know, convicted of misdemeanor types of crimes, they're at in much increased risk of um, harming their partner in domestic violence situations, and yet we've not been able to get a policy to disarm them, even temporarily in this country, even though we are no, you know, the risk to women with an abusive partner who is armed is just off the charts, uh, the number of women dying in this country. So we can do more to focus on the risk. Who's at risk of committing the violence and reducing gun violence in that manner? Um, and I think that those regulations, you know, don't harm somebody who's not at risk. Um, I guess 
let's not continue down the rabbit hole of, I think we could have a whole nother panel on that topic. <laughs> um, but how about this? Let's do, let's go down the line and each person says one policy proposal that they think people who tend to dis disagree with them um, could agree with them on. And yeah, we can start with Ms. Haas. Um, again, I sound like a broken record, but um, uh, Connecticut and Indiana have had um, what are called extreme risk laws for a number of years now. They've been upheld in a number of courts. I, I forget the circuit court that, that they made it to. Um, and in recent years, we've passed laws in California, Washington, Oregon. Um, it's been introduced in 20 other states, and I believe that uh, Massachusetts and New York are very close to passing them. Extreme risk laws do just that. They allow a f family member or law enforcement to petition a judge, ask the judge for a type of order depending upon your state. It might be a restraining order. It might be a protective order. Um, in Virginia, we've asked for a risk warrant, and that would allow the judge to assess the person, assess the risk, assess the evidence, and temporarily uh, disarm that person. The hope being that that person then gets the help he or she needs. Family members can intervene, and then this person at the end of that order can get their firearms back. If they get the help they need and they can, they can petition a judge before the expiration of the order to get that firearm back if they can present evidence um, that they're at reduced risk. Um, in California, and, and again, every state has a series of, of uh, processes that are unique to that state and their constitution and their laws. So they look a little different in every state. Some states call them gun violence restraining orders. Some states call them extreme risk protective orders. And again, an umbrella term is what we call extreme risk laws. And um, recently, the uh, Florida legislature passed an extreme risk law as part of the package of their response to the school shooting down there. Governor Rick Scott uh, signed the law. We've seen some support across both sides of the aisle for these laws. You know, they're not going to capture all gun violence, but they're certainly going to give law enforcement a tool. Uh, law enforcement tell me right now if they get a phone call from a concerned family member and say, come take Uncle Johnny's gun, he's drunk and threatening himself, they have to say, uh, he's not broken a law. And that's what we saw in Florida. I suspect, I don't know it's the case, that when law enforcement were called, he hadn't broken any laws. What, what, what were their options with regard to this young man, you know? So we need to do more. There's a lot of regulations I would, I would suggest, universal background checks, domestic violence law, uh, laws that attempt to disarm domestic abusers who have been convicted in court. Um, we need child access laws. We need better laws that protect our youth and children. We have, you know, too many accidents in that regard. Um, um, just for the sake of time, just because yeah, I, want, I be also want to get to... But extreme, extreme risk laws are the ones that I think that have the most um, attention and the most um, opportunity right now. So, yeah, let's keep them a little bit short. I, I want to get to audience questions, and we have the room till 5.30. Maybe we can stay longer until someone says otherwise, but uh, just one policy proposal and um, maybe two sentences. Um, okay, so for me, since I've um, been a threat assessment advocate, I'll um, go with that in increasing um, the amount of um, threat assessment um, 
are increasing the um, use of threat assessment teams um, as well as increasing the funding for the training that goes along with these threat assessment teams. Um, they're only as good as the um, the training, the team is only as good as the team members, and the team members aren't properly properly trained on threat assessment, on aberrant behavior, on recognition, on solutions um, that that result out of that. Um, then um, there's you know really no efficacy in um, in how they're in being implemented. That fast enough? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have policy proposals. That's fine. Um, so uh, all I'm just going to do is remind both sides of the issue of a couple salient uh, characteristics of governing in the United States, and that is one, no civil liberty is absolute, it can be regulated, and two, for those who want gun control, remember it's a system designed to produce incremental change. If you're looking for broad sweeping change, the United States ain't it. Okay. Um, the um, anytime somebody says they want to give law enforcement a tool, I just want to get you keyed into this. That means it's going to come out of your civil liberties. That's the tool. It always is. And um, the problem, and you know, it, there could be some ground on the whole idea of these emergency orders, except they don't do due process. Somebody, without you knowing it, it's called ex parte, somebody can go in front of the judge and then get one of these orders, and you have no idea this is coming. Next thing you know, there's a knock on the door and people are pointing guns at you. They come in and take away your guns. You may not have any idea why this is happening to you. Um, and then, well, so you've got no due process there. Your guns are gone. You may have 50 guns. The police are going to have fun, you know, figuring out what they're going to do with those and not destroy them. And I wouldn't count on the guns coming back in the same shape that they left the house. Um, number two, um, did, you, did you have a policy uh, proposal? That well, I'm talking policy proposal. Okay. I mean, that was that was Lori's policy and, and, and uh, Jessica's. Uh, anyhow, the, the problem is due process. If they can solve that, then we might be able to find some ground. But people need to have their due process before their rights are taken away, not after. You can't do it that way. Um, and universal background checks is something that uh, every mass shooter recently has passed their background check. So mine would be what I said earlier, um, let, as an emergency action, let, let people with permits carry guns. The truth is, the odds of you having to use it are extremely rare in the first place. Number two, defending a classroom is quite simple, because this is a rare exception where you've got two doors. Most classrooms have one door. Students in one corner, the teacher locks on the door. Anybody coming through there that's, that's going to try to kill people, is he's going to get a tremendous disadvantage. It's not that difficult. This isn't rocket science. Okay, um, let's do a rapid response where I say a commonly proposed policy solution and you guys in one sentence and not more than one sentence or zero sentences if you're Professor Huggenbach, um, say what you think about that proposal. So, so we'll go down the line and uh, we'll start with you and you can just pass the mic up. I don't know how you'll get it back here for, but, uh, okay, yeah, let's do that. Okay, so universal background checks. Yes. Yes, when implemented with efficacy. Maybe. No, uh, they uh, don't really do that much. Background checks do not do that much. Um, how about mental health screenings? 
The problem is how far back, how, how, how much are your medical records going to be opened up to some bureaucrat? So if somebody's acting irrationally, that's one thing. Just to have somebody go through your records to try to find something, no. This gets back to one of your original questions, policy uh, complexity. There are a number of in, uh, uh, advocates for uh, patient rights um, who have significant issues uh, with that particular policy proposal, and that's going to have to be overcome. And there's a voluminous body of state and federal case law that would make it very difficult in that regard. Ditto. <laughs> um, persons with diagnosed mental illness are no more at risk of committing violence than you or I. We see it in these high-profile mass shootings sometimes that the person has a history of certain illnesses. But, you know, to, to suggest that mental health screenings are going to solve this problem, I, I disagree with them. Arming teachers. No. We have no evidence to suggest that that would do anything to help um, the problem. There's also a policy policy issues, um, and I know I'm going over one sentence, but I apologize. Um, you know, <laughs> it's a compound sentence. What, where it's a really long run-on sentence. Where where are these guns going to be stored? Who has access to them? What happens if a teacher is if in a high school and a high school student overcomes them and takes their weapon from them? Um, if they're in a situation where it is, you know, how do we um, encounter for if a student is accidentally shot is the liability on the teacher is the liability on the school who's going to take on all of that extra insurance money that they're going to have to pay to accommodate that I know my answer is going to sound somewhat uh, lighthearted and it's not intended to be but as a teacher I would no want I would no more want some of my colleagues having access or operating firearms um, than a mass shooter. Well, you may not want some of your colleagues to even have access to a microphone. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, we, we firmly believe that uh, that would be uh, something that would be worthy of support. Again, it's, uh, it's a last ditch effort to save lives. What if you, at that point, if somebody's killing people, and somebody jumps up and has a gun, you know, what, you can tell them, no, sit down, I want to be slaughtered, don't even try to stop the guy. So we think it's, it's a worthwhile effort. Um, raising the purchasing age from 18 to 21. Okay, are we going to raise the voting age from 18 to 21 since if somebody's so uh, immature that they can't own a rifle at an age we people have been owning rifles in America since America existed, then maybe they, they're too immature to vote. Maybe they shouldn't serve in the military. I mean, how can you put, give them an AR-15 and send them out to, to protect the country if they're so immature? No, we think that the laws are fine on that. In fact, maybe they should consider uh, giving them all their rights since they're adults at 18 and moving the handgun age down to 18. Yes. I think if we look at the average age of um, people committing gun violence, um, that it is and does tend to skew too to, to younger, so it is a conversation that's worthy and appropriate to have. You know, I have a mixed reaction on that one. I think that I would go with the evidence and go with the data to tell us, and maybe there's a step kind of way to look at it. You know, maybe there is a process under which an 18-year-old could apply. and 
just like they can uh, be emancipated at 16 and there's laws that address certain situations, maybe we could look at it. Generally speaking, with the way things are at the moment, I'd say 21 is a better idea. Um, how about the gun violence restraining order, which I think has been brought up before, permits a spouse, parent, sibling, or person living with an individual to petition the court for an order enabling law enforcement to temporarily take that individual's guns rights away. Yes, and I would disagree with Mr. Van Cleve on the due process. These do have to go in front of a judge. And we have protective orders that go in front of a judge. We have a system where ex parte orders are administered. So I think we can overcome you know, the concerns about uh, due process. I think they're legitimate, but I think we have a system now in the courts and we can work on that. I agree with what Ms. Haas has said. Uh, yes, but with the proviso, I would like to see a more explicit guidance coming from the courts, the federal courts, about uh, uh, the due process concerns. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's ex parte. I hardly think it's due process when you're not even there and you can't defend yourself. What, what kind of due process is that? Um, uh, and yeah, we'll keep it with you. Uh, gun buyback uh, program in the Australia fashion. Okay, that's gun confiscation, but you get some money. But you got to turn the gun in. I think they had 30% of the people turned in their guns. The rest of them said no way. So that didn't work very well. Um, but that's what that is. It's confiscation. It's saying, you know, you will turn your gun in. We'll give you some money for it to sweeten it, but you're turning it in. And um, Australia historically had a, a very low uh, crime rate. In fact, their crime rate was dropping before they, they did that buyback, and it just continued to go down. It was already in that trend, as was America's. America's crimes have been dropping now for about 30 years as well. They violent crime. I think there are public policy implementation issues that need to be worked out, but in general, I don't necessarily see a problem um, with such a program. Um, I, I agree. Um, again, it's voluntary, so I'm not sure what exactly it's um, going to do to um, decrease the um, or to help with gun control. The idea that there's less guns, if people don't want their guns, they can, you know, give them back to someone, um, but the people who want the guns are still going to have the guns if it's voluntary so are you asking a mandatory or a voluntary mandatory. was mandatory i think in um not knowing how you would implement it who would abide by it how it would be orchestrated what the process would be you know would i like to get more of these guns off the street some is some of the more uh high-powered things yes absolutely I would like that to happen I would like to find a way to make it happen um, and I'm gonna go over. <laughs> you can add another sentence I, so we regulate one of the things I want to mention is regulation can work we regulate class 3 firearms and you don't see horrendous you know instances using these class 3 firearms that are already highly regulated so maybe the answer is regulation. Okay, so one thing that I think everybody can agree on is that the tone and the fashion that this debate is had in the public forum has not been productive. And I think we, we have evidence to support that. Um, so how can we change the... the Make that comment again. Like 
the the way the the way that we argue this or the way that we talk about this issue has not produced any solutions because we still we, we continue to have mass shootings how can we change the tone or how can we how can we change the way we talk about this so that we that both sides come to an understanding or all sides come to an understanding You know, I, I, for me, it's a clear, um, it's very clear to me. I value life over, a, uh, over an inanimate object. I think that we regulate every right in the Constitution. We can regulate this right to save lives. I, I think it's imperative as a society and as a people. And I'm not sure to how to fix the conversation, honestly. I see your hands. We'll we'll have audience questions at the, at the end. I, from a policy, but we got it. We also got to keep the answers short um, for pro that. From a pro policy perspective, I think um, what John mentioned earlier is remembering that um, we are a system based on incrementalism, um, and not to and for both sides to expect that and to recognize on both sides that hey, if we do pass a regulation, that doesn't mean that the government's coming in and taking everyone's gun. On the other side, if we do pass. A regulation that doesn't mean that all gun violence is going to stop overnight just because we passed one regulation. Um, it's something that we all have to kind of and and kind of be willing to make concessions and be willing to compromise if we're if we are going to get something done and also have a having a clear goal. You know, is our goal gun control in general? Is our goal stopping mass shootings? Is our goal protecting? Um, civil liberties at all cost. Um, you know, I think that's if we frame the conversation on how how can we have a common goal and um, both both sides coming willingness to come to the table for compromise may help um, have that make that com conversation a little more productive. I'm going to uh, echo her remarks. Um, if the sides in this policy debate like the sides of many policy debates. If the end goal is complete and utter victory, um, then we're not going to get common ground. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and that's a shame because um, a lot of lives get lost and there's a lot of, there's quite a few responsible gun owners in this country who end up getting tarred uh, because of the behavior of a few. Um, it requires compromise. Um, and if you're not willing to go ahead and compromise, um, then to your question, Fidel, uh, then the tone's going to get, uh, you know, is, is, is going to be just as bad and people aren't going to have conversations and, you know, Hey, listen, you know, listen to what the other person actually wants, you know, what is the goal? Because a lot of people will go ahead and say, well, we need gun control. Okay, well, what kind of gun control? Um, I hear people, I know this is longer than one sentence. That's so fine. I, me. I'm enjoying it. Okay, but then I also hear people on the other side saying, well, you know, I have an absolute right to this. And as soon as they say that, I stop listening to them because they're wrong. Okay? So if we're not going to have a conversation and if we're not going to go ahead and listen to one another, um, then the tone is, is, is just going to be nails on a blackboard. It's going to be that teacher in the uh, Peanuts cartoon, blah, 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 okay? And nothing gets done. Nothing gets done. 
Well, from the gun owner's perspective, first of all, we very much love life too, Lori. Uh, in fact, one reason that I carry a gun is to protect innocent life, and, and um, that's, that's the number one thing. Far, guns are used far more to save lives than, are, than they're used to take them. Uh, on the issue of compromise, um, usually for a gun owner, compromise means we give up half of what we've got and the other side gives us nothing. And I can give you a classic example of that that just happened a couple of years ago where we put out a bill that would allow permits from all states to be honored in Virginia. Anybody visiting from another state could carry here. And we had two bills that were gun control bills uh, that went to the governor. And all the gun control groups were telling the governor, well, renege on this deal that they set up you know, don't sign the bill that lets people carry in this state. Just sign the two gun control bills. And when you see that happen, you kind of go, I'm not compromising. You can't compromise when that happens. That was a total break of trust. So we're going to open it up to the audience, which I understand is a very risky thing to do. <laughs> and <laughs> I see a lot of hands going up already. Uh, I just want to remind everyone we put this thing together so that we could have productive conversation. And that means you're not accusing people of anything. Um, and you're not ambushing people with questions that, you know, you're asking reasonable questions and you're here to learn. So we're short on time, but we'll, 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 have, we'll take maybe three or four questions. Um, if you want to address us panelists specifically, go ahead. Um, Okay, I don't even know how I'm going to do this. Okay. Pick one question from each section. Okay, I'll, get, I'll do one question from each section. Um, well, I mean, okay, okay, go ahead, go ahead. All right, how about this? If you're, if you're not a student, put your hand down. Sorry. <laughs> no, I like that idea better. If you're not a student, put your hand down. We'll, we'll just do students. Okay. Well, this is a this is a student event. Um, so go ahead. Well, actually, I'll let you ask your question. You can ask your question. And can you talk into the microphone also? It's illegal under federal law to buy a handgun across state lines. So all those sales that were going on in Indiana would be illegal. Might be done by straw purchasers. Um, and, and uh, I'm sorry? That's illegal, yes. But, but, but I, the, the point is, it's under federal law, it doesn't matter. Under federal law, it's illegal if you do that. So that's already illegal. And the other question is, if Indiana has all these guns, and, and also they talk about Wisconsin, why don't they have the problem that Chicago has? Why is it that Chicago somehow requires these places which don't have crime to feed guns to them so they, they have crime? It's uh, Oh, absolutely. Well, absolutely. Uh, I thought since I was a deputy sheriff in the 70s that it was a waste of time. All right, let's, okay. Let's stay on topic. Let's ask one question and let uh, a panelist answer. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. I'm going to. Oh, sorry. I got to reiterate the question. Uh, we're on the radio as well. Okay. So, ten years ago, the. Can you reiterate the question? Yeah. Yeah. 
the question was, uh, according to the, uh, the audience member, the, uh, the interpretation of the Second Amendment was that it protected uh, a national militia right to bear and possess firearms, correct? Okay. So what changed 10 years ago? As I mentioned earlier in my remarks, that's a di uh, disputed, if you will, claim among constitutional law scholars and historians. There's a body of them that say, yes, you are correct. There's also a large number of them that say, no, you're not. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned in response to one of my panelists' uh, uh, questions to me, uh, the Supreme Court, by and large, by and large, ignored it or tap danced around answering that question until D.C. versus Heller. It was never explicitly asked, and this gets to my other panelist's comment, it was never explicitly asked of the court until D.C. versus Heller. So the court took a specific case to answer that specific question. Um, so, you know, I dispute your fundamental premise of your question, but if you want to go ahead and get to the nitty-gritty of uh, judicial politics, well, you know, you had uh, a number of justices who were appointed by presidents who by and large believed, in part as a collection of constitutional rights, that individuals should be able to bear and possess a firearm. Okay? Was it a close vote? Sure. Five to four in both cases. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I've heard, you know, advocates for greater gun control say, hey, we need a, a certain president or a certain type of president to appoint certain Supreme Court justices. Hey, you're may, you may be right, okay? Uh, but to answer your question, I wouldn't necessarily say there was something that happened. It was just that the court, okay, finally took the question and answered it. And it, it's in the vote on the court was as closely divided as what you see among scholars, uh, historians, uh, public policy, if you will, practitioners about what was the original meaning behind the Second Amendment. Thus, my joke earlier this afternoon, it would really be nice if the framers had given us a glossary of terms. Um, next question. <laughs> okay. Okay, just because this is a student event, and for the sake of time, we're going to leave it to students right now. Um, do you want to? Do you want to ask a question? And you can come up here and ask it too. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we need it in the microphone. Um, my question to to the panel. Uh, has to do with, I think we're comfortable phrasing this conversation in terms of public health and public safety. Uh, so in terms of those outcomes, how do you see this debate being distinct from uh, one of, uh, for instance, regulating the use of cars and uh, instances of car crashes, that kind of thing? Uh, other than the presence of the Second Amendment, in terms of public safety outcomes, how do you see that being a distinct conversation? Um, well, so thank you for your question. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, um, I, I do appreciate it, um, and I appreciate you all being a very interactive audience. Um, <clears throat> so one thing I think is, is different is the um, kind of restrictions on the government studying gun health or the effect of gun violence on public health and gun violence in general. So we have a ton of research 
um, from private sector or um, think tanks on um, gun violence and on gun use and on gun ownership. We do not have that from an arguably um, maybe nonpartisan government-based um, research um, entity. Um, so we have plenty on both sides of the aisle, um, but we do not have, we cannot have that um, um, from the United States government um, for, or from the federal government. And so I, I think that's one issue that needs to be addressed so that we do have that data through the, um, through the, um, through different, um, through the CDC or through the, um, um, you know, the CBO or anything like that, that where um, the government research arm. Um, you know, clearly with the numbers that we see in, in um, regarding gun deaths in, in America, including gun suicides, gun homicides, and other, other can be defined as justifiable or accident or undefined. You know, we do have a public health problem, and to address it from a public health angle, I think, is a great idea. Just what we've talked about several people here. What is the evidence? What is the data? What is the direction? What, what does that show you? Does that lead you to a a policy fix, and I, I think we can get there. I do think that we need to lift the funding restrictions on the CDC so they can study it better so we can have good data. I think that um, academics and universities across the United States have stepped up in a big, big way. There's a lot of schools in public health. Johns Hopkins School of Public Health studies this. Harvard has an injury research center. There's one at UC Davis. There are many across the uh, United States, and I think as the CDC has been restricted, they have stepped up in a big way. And I think there's a lot more information out there than the American public realizes. You know, there is public health data that's available to all of us. So um, I hope if you're interested, you will look at it and, and, and view it through that lens. You know, what does is, what is the evidence show us and what direction is it sending us? Well, the problem with the CDC back in the 90s and the reason they got defunded for doing this is that their research was basically uh, um, bad, bad research, if you will, or bad science, whatever you want to call it. It was, it was very biased. And some of the names she mentioned of some of these other research things are funded by, like, Michael Bloomberg. I think we know what he's going to be funding based upon his position on guns all these years and his, his continued efforts in that. So you've got to be able to trust the research to be unbiased. And that's why the Congress unfunded it. They just, they felt in the 90s that this was not unbiased research. And it got its funding pulled. Okay, let's do one more question. And then afterwards, um, you know, maybe if, I know you have to go, but if any of you guys want to stay after and take other questions, um, we have to leave the room though. Um, then we can do that. So let's do one more question from a student. Okay. So obviously lobbying isn't illegal, like companies can lobby to Congress, but a, a, like lobbying isn't like illegal, obviously companies can lobby to Congress, but one of the big issues that a lot of the Parkland students have been bringing to light is the amount of like monetary contributions that are influencing um, legislators' decisions against the wishes of their constituents, like what are your thoughts on that? So that's where I would say it, that's what, um, the value of registering to vote and active participation, um, especially in um, House and Senate races. Um, those races, voter turnout is incredibly low. 
and so you're only your um, senators and representatives are only representing the views of people who are voting for them arguably and so that's why um, participation means so much registering to vote actually voting uh, contacting your representative um, and so if you know we that's our system we're based on a representative um, d democracy and so it's only as good as the participation of the um, of the people um, so I would say to that if you know if the majority of people in a district aren't happy about something but they're not voting um, you know that's kind of a, a sign that you know they're either um, not not caring or they're that they're they feel um, disconnected um, but the only way to get the um, represent your representatives to listen to you and to pay attention to you is to participate um, and so that would be my answer to that um. I would agree that they, we have a big problem with money in politics and it's a big issue and it, somebody smarter than me needs to figure it out. But, you know, when someone, you know, corporate America can spend a million dollars to influence a vote and I have, you know, five dollars, you know, to influence my representative, that, that's a disparity that needs to be addressed. It just needs to be fixed. Number two, in Virginia, we have, um, we have gerrymandered districts. Right now we have too many districts that are not representative of the voters. It's, we have the elected officials, House and Senate members, who are choosing their voters. I think we need a nonpartisan redistricting commission that is principally driven by computers, you know, data. Use the, you know, draw your circles, you know, follow the Constitution, but come up with our districts that are uh, based on, you know, the number of voters and contiguous and the other factors that are in the Virginia Constitution. Um, we can have, if a legislator represents a district that's 50-50, he's going to listen to both sides, he's going to try to meet in the middle, and he's going to try to compromise and move the ball forward. That's what democracy is about. It's not your side or our side or his side or their side. You know, if our districts were 50-50 and competitive, I think that our legislators would have to listen to everyone and do the best job they can. They'd make you happy some of the time, they'd make me happy some of the time, and we'd, we'd, we'd probably have some compromise that all of us at this table recognize is the way to move forward on any issue. So people often ask me, what's your biggest hurdle, Mrs. Hosh, when you want to do this? And in Virginia at the state level, my first answer is gerrymandered districts. Yes, uh, and of course, um, lobbying, uh, Lori lobbies, I lobby, we, we're representing individuals. Um, we re we're not handing out money, we're representing our individuals, though, uh, groups of, of people that believe one way. And that's, so lobbying in itself isn't a bad word. I would also just quickly say, those of you that have never actually gone shooting, go shooting sometime. And thank you for, I appreciate you guys coming out, but uh, try it sometime. You're going to be surprised. It's a lot of fun. All right, with that, um, we got to go because this book, we, we, over we overstayed our welcome. Um, yeah. Um, Ms. Haas is going to be giving out handouts if anyone wants them. Do you mind? Um, thank you so much to everyone at the Commonwealth Times. Thank you, WVCW Radio. Um, thank you, Mercury Video. And have a good day, everyone.